Good morning, good morning. We always seem to have that um, microphone handover issue where we miss each other on that. But I hope you're well today. And as Shell said, yeah, we are starting a new series around the book of Ephesians today, which I'm really excited about. And I hope um, you feel the same way that I do about series like this, because I see each new series we do as almost a dose of truth into the life of this church and hopefully into each one of our lives too. And hopefully more than just learning more information about the Bible, which is a good thing, that actually we would be growing and being challenged and transformed uh, to follow Jesus and to live out His ways. And this year we did a series around knowing God and we just did a series on life in the Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. And there have been some cool stories that I've heard, maybe you haven't heard, about some of what God has been teaching people and challenging people on. And last week I spoke about prophecy, that for some of you is maybe um, as normal as breathing, for others maybe that is such a radical out there idea that maybe freaks you out a little bit. But I had such a cool moment afterwards, I was chatting to Eugene who just led us in worship and we were speaking downstairs and Marika Klein came up to him and just said, Eugene, I just want to be obedient to what I thought God was saying. And she shared this word or this encouragement with him, which tied in so well with something he'd been speaking to me about about a month before. And I just thought, how cool is that, you know? Marika's been provoked in a meeting like this with something God is saying to her. And she goes up to Eugene and shares that and encourages him and what God is saying to him and getting faith to live out God's will in his life. And I'm just hoping as we go through the book of Ephesians that this would be a similar thing, that there would be these doses of truth that would go into our hearts and minds and lives that would challenge and encourage and grow us as a community, not just to know the book of Ephesians, but to live it out, to be changed and to be transformed. And this morning, we're going to start this book. But I want you to know, as I've prepared for this, looking at the themes of the book of Ephesians and looking at Ephesus itself, I'm amazed at how relevant this letter is for us today. Now, I think some of you might be sitting there and you're going, what is an Ephesian? You know, what is an Ephesus? Why are we doing this? You haven't read this book of the Bible or you're new to the Bible or church or something like this. And when I tell you that this is a letter written to a church 2,000 years ago, you're going to go, Cool, that sounds like a waste of the next half hour of my life. But I think as you look at some of the themes that we are going to cover in this series, you're going to see how this letter is so relevant for us in Durban today. Let me tell you why. Ephesus was a harbor city in what is now modern-day Turkey, a city very much like ours geographically. It intersected a number of major trade routes, which made it this commercial center in what is now modern-day Turkey, and it really was the gateway to Asia, but from a biblical point of view, it would become something of a gateway for the gospel as people intersected in that place and met, and cultures and races and different backgrounds and people with very different stories came together in the city of Ephesus. So it was a very multicultural city, and it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was kind of a big deal, about 500,000 people in the city at that time. Our city is somewhere between 3.2 and 3.5 million people, so we're much bigger. But like that was the fourth largest in the empire, we're the second largest in the country and the third best known. I don't know if you've ever tried that with people from other countries. You say, Joburg, yes. Cape Town, yes. Durban? There's like a bit of a 50-50 hit rate whether they'll know it or not. But one of the things that research tells us about Ephesus is that the Ephesians worshipped up to about 50 gods and goddesses, which again, sounds a little bit like Durban. It's many faiths, many different gods worshipped in the city that we're in. But Artemis or Diana was the favorite by far. In fact, in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, which is going to pop up on the screen behind me now. This was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
It could host over 20,000 people at one time in this venue. How beautiful is that at night, eh? What a, an artist's rendition. But uh, this was a really, really big deal. I want you to think of this as the Moses Mobita Stadium of Ephesus. You know, this would have changed the skyline and the cityscape of the city. And this would have been a massive point where people came together to worship this goddess. This was a big cultural touch point for many people. And I guess lastly, as we look at all of those things, we see that Ephesus was a harbor city, was a multicultural city, and it was a spiritually diverse city, just like Durban. And into that context, Paul the Apostle comes to preach and plant the gospel and to start this church. Now listen, what I'm about to say is not going to sound smart, but just stick with me for a bit. As we go through this letter, which is six chapters, okay? So this really is something you could read through breakfast. And I want to encourage you to get a Bible or download a Bible app and start to read through the book of Ephesians on your own and start to think it through and pray it through and maybe journal some ideas through to wrestle with this text on your own. But this really is the kind of thing that you could read in 15 or 20 minutes, depending on your reading speed. But as we go through this, you're going to see that these six chapters have two distinct halves. This is where I don't sound very smart. Chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. <laughs> I did higher grade maths at high school. Very, very smart chap. But the point is in chapters 1 to 3, Paul is writing to lay this gospel foundation. He wants us to understand who Jesus is and what he's done and how that impacts our lives. He's speaking in these first three chapters of this new identity we have in Christ as Christians and what that means for us. He lays this foundation of our position in Christ. So as you read through chapter 1, 2, and 3, notice those things. Who you are, this new identity you have as a Christian. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he goes from our position in Christ to our condition or to our practice as Christians, what we are called to do in light of who Jesus is and who we are in him, the lives we're called to live, and actually what it looks like to apply the gospel to every area of life and live out the way of Jesus. Chapters 1 to 3, our position in Christ. Chapters 4 to 6, what it looks like to live out our faith. But if that sounds a little bit confusing to you, let me give you a little illustration quick. You may have heard this before. But one day a small child named Thomas Edison, you may have heard of him, he became a really, really great inventor. He came home from school and he gave a letter to his mother. And he said, Mom, the teacher has said to me that only you can read this. What does this letter say? And Thomas Edison's mom opened up the letter and read to him and said, um, Your son is a genius. The school is too small for him and doesn't have good enough teachers to train him. Please teach him yourself. And that's exactly what his mother did for the next number of years. She taught him and invested in him and mentored him and tried to upskill him. And he became one of the greatest inventors of all time. He actually was the guy who invented film, you know, that would go in a film camera before digital cameras came out. He invented the movie camera. He invented the light bulb. And he also invented some forms of car batteries. Dave Pons is an inventor here in the front row, so I'm sure he's like checking me out. Okay, okay, that's right. But Thomas Edison at one point had over a thousand patents of inventions that he had come up with in the U.S. alone. In some other countries, he had some other inventions going on too. He was this amazing man. And after his mother died, he went back to her home and he was cleaning things up. And he found this letter that the teacher had given him when he was this young boy. And he opened it up and he read it again. And it said something different to what his mom had said. 
It read, your son is mentally deficient. We cannot let him attend our school anymore. He is expelled. You can imagine Edison hearing that was understandably quite emotional, you know? This whole life I've been living, you know, I was a failure at school. And then he thought of what his mother had done, and he wrote in his diary that day, Thomas A. Edison was a mentally deficient child whose mother turned him into the genius of the century. And I get a little emotional thinking through that story or or just processing it because it's amazing to think of the effect that words can have on our futures. You know, you just think of the fact that his mother could have said to him, you stupid boy, you've been expelled from school. They say you're too dumb. Why can't you apply yourself? You're good for nothing and kicks him. And then for the rest of his life, she tells him those things over and over and over again. She treats him differently. She speaks to him differently. Do you think he would have still become that great inventor? Probably not. And I just thought for every one of us here today, there's this reality that Satan would love to give you a letter that talks about all of your failings and your shortcomings, all of your sins, all of your idols, all of your mess-ups, all of the reasons God should reject you and should disqualify you and should shout at you and tell you you're good for nothing and useless. But the gospel does something completely different. What it does is rather than having our mother read us a different letter, actually God the Father does. He reads us a letter about a new identity that we have in Jesus. A letter about what Jesus has done for you and for me. And for me it would say something like this. Grant is forgiven, redeemed, adopted, loved, blessed, chosen, and new in Christ. And for me and for you, that is the truest thing about us. You are not your mess-ups, you are not your failings, you are not your flaws, you are not your sins. You are not all of that stuff. In Christ, you are a completely new person with a new identity. So like Edison, you can go home today, you can write in your journal something like this. Grant Clark was an imperfect sinner, far from God, but Jesus, his Savior, changed his life and turned him into a completely new man. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message we're speaking about here, how our identity can completely transform our destiny. What are the words that have shaped who you are today? What are the things people have said or how you've seen yourself or what you've believed about yourself that have shaped the man or woman you are sitting in this room today? That's what Paul's going to speak about a lot in the book of Ephesians. And he starts with these words in Ephesians 1, verse 1 to 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's start with Paul there. Paul writes about himself and he says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. I know we all come from different backgrounds and some of you would come from church backgrounds where the word apostle was thrown around a lot. I know driving around Durban, you can go past some churches where there's a sign up and there's a picture of the leader of the church and it says apostle so-and-so or prophet so-and-so or someone else so-and-so and titles become a big deal. And let's just put those things aside for a sec, because apostle very simply means sent one. That's the idea of that term from the Greek. A missionary sent out by God to preach and plant the gospel in different places, to plant and strengthen churches, to build gospel DNA and gospel foundations in churches and communities so that they can flourish and impact the world around them. That's what an apostle is. And Paul says, I am an apostle by the will of God. That's why he's writing to the Ephesian church, because this is his job description. But the cool thing kind of behind that idea, Paul, an apostle, is that he was not always that guy. 
In fact, Paul, just a little bit before, had been a Jesus hater, a church destroyer, a Christian arrester. He had lived his life to extinguish the Jesus message from the Roman Empire. That's what he went around doing. He had put people to death because they were followers of Christ. And now Paul, this apostle, is in prison in Rome. And he's writing this letter to this church that he loves because he's a completely new man. His identity has been changed in Christ. His priorities have become new in Christ. And even in prison, suffering for the gospel, he's not thinking about himself, but he's thinking about believers all around the empire. And he's writing these words from God to them to encourage them and build them up in the faith. He's been completely transformed by this Jesus message. You see, the gospel came and it disrupted Paul's life. He was going in one direction and Jesus and his message smacked him and took him in a completely different direction. It redefined his life and his purpose and his calling and the way he saw himself. And now Paul is writing from prison in love with Jesus because Christ has become his whole life. In fact, Paul will go on to be martyred or killed for the gospel. And writing to another church in another area a little bit earlier, he says in Philippians 3 verse 7 to 8, But whatever gain I had in my whole life, in my old life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To put it mildly, Paul's had a slight change of heart. (laughs) He's a completely new man. He's been absolutely transformed by Jesus. And he carries on to write, and he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And that word saint is an interesting word. I don't know your background. I don't know your story. But probably for each of us in this room, we think of different things when we hear the word saint. What does Paul mean when he uses it? Is he just writing to a few super spiritual members of this church in Ephesus? The kind of Mother Teresa's in the room. And maybe this church had a few people like that. I mean, maybe this church is even more. But that's, of course, not what he's doing. In another place, writing to that church in Philippi again, he says in Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. There's a whole handful of them. With the overseers or elders or pastors and the deacons. And we see there's almost three groups of people he's speaking to in the church there. There are the elders like Shane, myself, and Brendan who lead the church. Then there's the deacon team or the servant leaders of the church who lead ministries and serve in a whole bunch of different capacities and ways in the church. And then there's the saints. And the saints isn't the small group. It's everyone in the church who is in Christ. That is who you are, what you are. If you are a Christian, if you were a follower of Jesus, you are a saint, which is probably mind-blowing for some of us. I'm sure some of you in this room have said something before like, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm no saint, you know. Well, maybe that is true in terms of your lifestyle, but it's not true of your position in Christ. In Christ, you are a saint. That's your identity. That's your reality. That is how God sees you in Christ because of the life that he has lived on your behalf. Positionally, that's who you are. So that means we want to live out of our position and live in light of what God calls us. We want to live out the ways of Jesus as saints, holy, called out ones. That's what a saint is. We want to grow and learn to live out the way of Jesus and live out our identity more and more. Tony Merida says, personal holiness is about becoming in practice who we are in position. 
And it's quite a profound idea, you know. Our position is who we are in Christ, and our practice is how we are living out the reality of who we are in Him. And this gospel that comforts us, think of that story, the letter from Thomas Edison's teacher to him, how his mother translated that, how the gospel gives us a better word. It speaks differently about who we are. That comforts us. It comforted Paul. It comforted this church in Ephesus. But the gospel challenges us too. It comforts us in who we are in Christ. But it challenges us to live out the new way of who we are in him. Titus 2 verse 11 to 12 puts it this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is a comforting truth. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, that is a challenging reality. And there's this tension you're going to see as we go through Ephesians 1 to 3, comfort. And then Ephesians 4 to 6 is going to challenge us to live out our faith. Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And one of the things he's trying to do in those verses is almost put two ideas to us. We are in Christ and we are in Ephesus. We are in Christ and we are in Durban. And there's these influences on our lives. And in a sense, how are you going to live? How are you going to respond? What kind of person will you be? This term, in Christ, appears 36 times in the book of Ephesians. Either talking about being united with Jesus in one way or in Christ or in Jesus, according to a man named Klein Snodgrass, who was one of the commentators I read preparing for today. If you're pregnant, if you're looking for a name for your son, and I recommend Klein Snodgrass to you. What a man. But there are a lot of terms for Christians other than being in Christ. What about believers, saints, followers of Jesus, followers of the way, born again, disciples? But for Paul, this idea of being in Christ, at least while he's writing this letter, seems to be his favorite idea and seems to have impacted him in a big way. Tony Merida again says, Your identity is in Christ, not your performance, your popularity, your productivity, or your prominence. I want to ask you today, are you defined by who you are in Christ? Or are you defined by the life that you have in Durban? What is the thing that gives you your identity and shapes you and comforts you and strengthens you? Does this city with its culture and worldviews, values and idols shape and define your life? Or does Jesus? And one of the benefits we have as we read through the scriptures is we see Paul through the book of Acts planting these churches that he's writing letters to. So if you go to Acts 19 this afternoon, you can actually read the story of that church being established in the city and what it took to see that happen and the story of how it all happened. And one of the things I love here is we get these two snapshots of what we're talking about today, how the gospel comforts and how the gospel challenges us. So Acts 19 verse 18 to 20 says, although, sorry, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what we see here is that Paul has been impacted by the gospel. It's collided with his life and transformed him forever. And now he goes into the city of Ephesus and it's colliding with people's lives and they are being changed. And now what is happening is the gospel is starting to collide with the city around and others are being impacted 
by this message. And what we see here is as these people are finding their identity in Christ, it's changing their priorities, and they are able to respond in a radical way to the message that's being preached. So what we see is they get, after a Sunday gathering like this, this big bonfire going, you know, and they have this repentance and confession worship session, and they go outside and they get all of their valuable stuff, which is contrary to the way of Jesus, and they throw it in the fire. It happens to be a lot of books with probably spells and magic practices, maybe some powders and potions and things. They throw that all in the fire and they burn it as worship to God, and it comes to 50,000 pieces of silver's worth. So there's a bit of a debate about how much that would be. The lowest number I found was about 70 million rands worth of stuff. Imagine we did that after the service today. We're going to get a fire going out there. You guys go home. We'll meet up in an hour. We're going to burn everything from our old lives, which is against the way of Jesus. It would be quite a radical moment. you know. We don't literally need to do that. But I do think what this passage challenges us on is what are the areas in our lives that need to change in line of the gospel? The gospel is the soothing balm which comforts us and calms us, but it can be like a bit of an, a pumice stone or like sandpaper abrasively scraping away at the sin and idols and parts of our lives which clash with the way of Jesus. And I want to ask you today, is there anything in your life that you need to throw into this figurative bonfire? Is there anything in your life which contradicts the way of Jesus that actually you say, I can't do this anymore. It's valuable. It's worth a lot. It's important to me, but it needs to go. What could that be for you? I wrote down some ideas. Maybe your job has become an idol for you. Maybe your relationship with a guy or girl has become an idol and you need to end it. Maybe for you, something you own is getting in the way of your faith in Jesus. Maybe for you, social media is something that you just can't go on without coveting and feeling anxious and feeling discouraged and not feeling good enough. So you need to throw that in this figurative fire. Maybe there's something in your life which you just know is something you are clinging to more than Jesus for your identity. And you go, I need to throw that into the fire. I need to give that up. I can't have that in my life anymore. Is there any decision or change you need to make to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and faithfully? Because this gospel of grace that comforts us is also the gospel of grace that challenges us. Paul's life has been transformed by the fact that he is in Christ. And as he faithfully preaches and lives out this message, what happens from time to time is he goes into a place and as he shares it, people don't like the challenge part of the message. You know, They push back against the challenge part of the message. And in this city, there's a riot that is kicked up by the message and the challenge that comes on people's lives. Acts 19 verse 23 to 27 it says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is what the early Christians or the early church was called, the way of Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. They were making a lot of money off of these idols that they were making out of silver. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, impacting their work, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world 
worship. The gospel is causing this disturbance in the city. People are responding. And you see what's starting to happen is actually the gospel is challenging structures of society and worldviews and culture, and people are responding to it. So this temple of Artemis that we spoke about, the seventh wonder of the world, that's able to host 20,000 plus people, is not seeing as many people through their doors as they used to. All of these people who make their living through making these silver shrines and idols, all of a sudden are not selling as many idols as they used to, and they find that people are talking less about Artemis on the street and more about Jesus. The cultural tide is changing, and these people are not too happy about it. So what's going to happen? The people are missing the good old days. The people are missing what it used to be like. The people don't want to change. The people don't want to adjust. And this riot starts in the city of Ephesus. And in Acts 19 verse 34, we read this. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, this is someone speaking to this crowd, this rioting group trying to calm everything down. When they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they just went and went and went. I mean, we sing for about half an hour on a Sunday. And we sing a bunch of songs. And I know some of you guys, you're like, oh, Eugene's doing that chorus again. Oh my gosh, like, can, we, can we move it on to the next song, you know? For two hours straight, these people just chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over and over again as this war with the message of Jesus that is being preached. They didn't want to change. They wanted to hold on to Artemis. And I think there's a huge challenge for us in that. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought of the things in our culture and society that the gospel challenges, that the gospel abrasively rubs against. And if you were to look at our city and think of the message of Jesus spreading, what would Durbanites chant? Great is of the Durbanites. What are the things that our city holds to rather than Jesus? I read a book last year or the year before called The Spirit of the Cities. It wasn't a Christian book. It was a sociological book written by these two guys who seem to have a great life. Basically, what they did is they went to 10 cities, and they walked the streets, and they just looked at things and wrote, wrote down what they saw in their notebooks. And they tried to observe what was at the center of these cities. What drove these cities? What was everything gathered around and centered around? And then they wrote 10 chapters on each of these different cities that they found interesting. Sadly, no African cities. So that was terrible. But they spoke about Hong Kong. And they said the spirit of Hong Kong is money and materialism. And I got to go to Hong Kong about four years ago. And we were sitting on a boat with Shell's sister, who at the time wasn't a Christian. And she said to us, you know what? The God of Hong Kong is money. She could see it, you know. As an outsider coming into the city, she could see everyone is driven by money. Everyone wants to earn more and have more and do more. This is what pulses through the city of Hong Kong. These guys say that New York would be ambition. Imagine New Yorkers in Times Square standing in front of that big screen just chanting, great is the ambition of the New Yorkers. Great is ambition of the New Yorkers. And they go on, they say Montreal's heart would be language. Oxford would be learning. Paris would be romance. Jerusalem would be religion. I thought, I wonder about Joburg and Cape Town and Durban. What would be the thing that everything pulsates around or is shaped by? I've chatted to quite a few people and quite a few pastors thinking, how does the gospel challenge our city? And obviously there are many ways, but I think probably the root idol, the root thing that we worship in the city of Durban would be comfort and lifestyle. I think that's something 
that we would chant, great is the lifestyle of the Durbanites. Great is the comfort of the Durbanites. We don't want to give that up. We don't want that to change. We like what we've got. And the challenge for us as we read a passage like this is we look and we think to ourselves, as we follow Jesus, is it ever possible that actually we put comfort before following him? Or as we hear his teachings and some of them are challenging, we actually think, I would rather have the lifestyle that I want rather than the things Jesus is calling me to. Or maybe on top of that, almost everyone says Durban is this laid-back beach town. You know, we were chatting to a, a Dutch woman last night who's lived in Cape Town for nine years. She said, whenever I come to Durban, I can't believe it's more laid-back than Cape Town, you know. Maybe almost the laid-backness of Durban forms a spiritual apathy in our own lives where we just go, I just want to chill, you know. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to obey his word. I just want to be laid back. Paul is writing and saying, you are in Christ and you are in Durban, but has Durban gotten into you or not? And Harbour City for us, as we go through this book of Ephesians, this is a mini theology book that is going to teach us a ton of different stuff about what the gospel has to say about the relevant conversations going on in our city at the moment. And it's going to show how the gospel disrupts these ideas with uh, with grace and power. Next week, we'll be looking a bit more at the gospel and identity. This This book covers the church and the mission of the church, what the gospel has to say about racial reconciliation, what the gospel says to marriage, parenting, family, and work. The gospel and spiritual warfare will be the last topic that we cover. But this book is full of riches and truths to help us to grow and to live out our faith. But I want to end by saying this. The bookends of the book of Ephesians are grace. Ephesians 1 verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last verse, Ephesians 6 verse 24, says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. And I want you to know this today. The grace of God is here to comfort you. I don't know the things that have been spoken to you, lies or truths about you that have maybe defined your life. But I believe that God today wants to speak the truths of who you are in Christ to you by grace. Not because you've done it, but because Christ has done it on your behalf for you. But the gospel also wants to challenge us. In this series, we will be challenged to live in light of this new identity that we've got. But the challenge isn't a hopeless challenge. It's not exo, go out and do it and kick you to the curb. This grace of God will train and teach us to become this kind of person. And it will empower us by the spirit that we've been talking about to live the kind of life that God has called us to. So today I know for some of you, you need that comforting grace of God for what you are facing. For some of you today, maybe it's the day you begin a journey of following Jesus and you lay your sins down before him and you know that he will not hold that letter up against you but he will speak new words to you of identity in Christ. And for others, maybe you know there's some things that you need to throw in the bonfire. And today, as we end in worship and as we pray, there's an opportunity to just lay them in the fire and say, God, empower me to live the new life you've called me to live. Can I ask you to stand and we're going to pray together. If you don't mind closing your eyes, we're kind of an eye-closed praying and worshiping church if you're down with that. If you need comfort this morning, comfort from God in any area, can I ask you to raise your hands to God as a sign of yieldedness and surrender? If you maybe 
feel like you can identify with that letter and actually you feel like you're so hard on yourself. You're believing lies about yourself. You um, are listening to that letter of Satan about yourself and just are so down and discouraged. I ask you, Jesus, to come with your profound grace and wash over us as a church and comfort people, Lord. I pray for everyone here who's responding in any way, for you to fill gaps in lives, blot out those lies, speak truth, and help us to know your grace in comfort. I pray for anyone today, Lord, who actually doesn't believe they can become a Christian, doesn't believe they can cross the line of faith, doesn't believe they can start a journey of following you. I pray even now you give them faith, Lord God, and I pray you would blot out their sins and that they would feel your love fill them and reveal that they are your son or daughter and that you are their father. And if maybe this morning you're challenged and you know there's stuff you need to throw into the fire, then I'll ask you to raise your hands to God as a sign of surrender, actually saying, God, I'm serious about this. If that's you, I want to pray for you. And I just ask even now for the challenging grace of God to fill you, that that grace wouldn't just abrasively rub against our sin and idols, but I pray it would pour hope into our hearts, power into our hearts, joy into our hearts. Help us to become the people you've called us to be, Lord. We know we can't do it on our own. We know that we don't have the strength to be perfect on our own. We know that we can't even just be decent today on our own. We ask you for power to be the men and women you've called us to be, to do the things you've called us to do. So would you fill us with grace and reveal our identity in you, we pray, Jesus. We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. Amen.